Mark, this is Democracy Now! NLRB judges have ruled that Starbucks violated federal labor law over 100 times during the past 18 months, far more than any other corporation in America. Sir, Starbucks Coffee Company unequivocally, let me set the tone for this very early on, has not broken the law. Senator Bernie Sanders grills Starbucks longtime CEO Howard Schultz in a testy Senate hearing on the company's union busting. We'll air excerpts and speak to a Starbucks worker fired for his union organizing. Then filmmaker Jennifer Fox. Five years ago, she made a remarkable narrative film, The Tale, based on her experience surviving child sexual abuse by a coach. When I was a child, I was obsessed with changing myself. Now I don't even remember who I used to be. Jennifer, sweetheart, I found a story that she wrote in the English class. Where'd you find it? What matters is what it says. I've met two very special people. Jennifer Fox recently revealed the name of the man who abused her, Ted Nash, a legendary Olympic rower and coach. Today, Jennifer Fox comes back on Democracy Now! for her first radio-television interview since making this revelation, which has sparked an investigation by the U.S. Rowing Federation. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations has adopted a landmark resolution that seeks to hold countries accountable for failing to respond to the climate crisis while protecting more vulnerable nations. On Wednesday, the U.N. General Assembly voted on a measure calling on the International Court of Justice to establish obligations under international law for nations to protect their populations from the impacts of global heating. The resolution was introduced by the low-lying Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu, which the U.N. has described as the nation most vulnerable to natural disasters. Its adoption comes a month after Vanuatu was hit by two powerful tropical cyclones. This is Cynthia Huniahi of the Solomon Islands, one of 27 students from eight Pacific Island countries who launched the campaign for the resolution. It's amazing to see and humbling to see how— this wild idea that we had, you know, four years ago, make its way from our classroom in the University of the South Pacific to the table or the floor of the United Nations General Assembly and to receive such a historic UN vote, you know, they vote by consensus. So that is, I still um, can't believe it's happened. The United States did not support the resolution, a senior Biden administration official told Reuters, quote, we believe that diplomacy, not an international judicial process, is the most effective path forward, unquote. Here in the United States, the Biden administration opened bidding Wednesday on oil and gas leases covering more than 73 million acres of the central and western Gulf of Mexico, an area roughly the size of Italy. Fossil fuel companies secured access to 1.6 million of those acres. Environmental groups blasted the Interior Department's lease sale as unconscionable and another betrayal of President Biden's campaign pledge to ban all new oil drilling on federal land, they said. 
in France. The European Court of Human Rights heard arguments Wednesday in a landmark lawsuit brought by women retirees from Switzerland who are suing the Swiss government over its failure to tackle the climate crisis. Members of the group Senior Women for Climate Protection argue older people's rights are being violated since they're at the highest risk of the extreme heat that's becoming more frequent due to global heating. Helping to argue the case were members of the ENRI, the European Network of National Human rights institutions. Few people have it in their power to change the course of history. You do. On behalf of all national human rights institutions in Europe, ENRI urges the court to use its power to protect vulnerable individuals against escalating and irreversible climate harm. The facts are simple. Greenhouse gas emissions cause heat extremes that kill. Mexico has launched a homicide probe into this week's fire at an immigrant jail in Ciudad Juarez near the U.S. border, which killed 39 asylum seekers. This is Mexican Security Minister Rosa Isela Rodriguez. Al momento, se tienen identificados... We have identified eight people allegedly responsible for the events, two federal agents, one state migration agent, and five members of the private security company are already testifying before the prosecutor's office. Part of the investigation is to confirm why civil protection protocols were not followed. It's clear that they were not respected. Also, we want to know why they did not save lives and were not able to open a gate. The tragedy has brought renewed scrutiny to the border policies many have called inhumane enacted by the U.S. and the harsh conditions at Mexican migrant jails. The United States Senate has voted to repeal the authorizations for the 1991 Gulf War and the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Wednesday's vote was 66 to 30, with 18 Republicans voting in favor of repealing the AUMFs, or authorizations for the use of military force. This is New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez. This vote shows that Congress is prepared to claw back our constitutional role in deciding how and when a nation goes to war, and also when it should end wars. It also protects against future administrations abusing authorizations that outlive their mandate but remain on the books. Among Democrats who voted to repeal the Iraq War authorizations were Senators Chuck Schumer, Maria Cantwell, and Dianne Feinstein, who voted in favor of authorizing force in Iraq in 2002. President Joe Biden, who also voted in favor of the invasion as a senator, has promised to sign the repeal if it's approved by the House. Turkey's parliament is voting today on whether to ratify Finland's bid to join NATO. It's the last remaining barrier to Finland's accession to the military alliance. If the ratification is approved, as expected, NATO will add more than 800 miles to its border with Russia. This comes as 10 nations, led by Canada, are wrapping up nearly two weeks of NATO war games in Latvia, a former Soviet republic that joined NATO in 2004. In Russia, thousands of troops began war games in Siberia Wednesday to train on the use of Russia's Yars mobile intercontinental ballistic missile system. The nuclear drills came as the Biden administration said it had stopped sharing detailed data on its strategic nuclear forces with Russia after President Vladimir Putin suspended Russia's participation in the new START nuclear arms treaty. Meanwhile, 
Russia says it has detained U.S. citizen and Wall Street Journal correspondent Evan Gershkovich, accusing him of spying. He was arrested in the city of Yekaterinburg in Russia's Ural Mountains. If convicted of espionage, Gershkovich faces up to 20 years in prison. West Virginia has banned gender-affirming health care for transgender minors, joining at least 10 other states that have enacted similar laws. The law makes an exception in cases where an adolescent is deemed to be at risk for self-harm or suicide, is diagnosed with severe gender dysphoria by two health care specialists, and has received parental consent. Meanwhile, in Kentucky, Republican lawmakers on Wednesday voted to override Democratic Governor Andy Bashir's veto of a sweeping anti-trans bill, which bans gender-affirming health care and forces people to use public restrooms that do not align with their gender. Protesters chanted from the House gallery during Wednesday's proceedings, leading to 19 arrests. In Tennessee, hundreds of people gathered at a candlelight vigil in Nashville Wednesday evening, mourning the three adults and three nine-year-old students killed by a heavily armed shooter at the Covenant School on Monday morning. First Lady Jill Biden joined the ceremony. On Capitol Hill, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said Wednesday, Republicans want to see all the facts before proposing any new gun legislation in the wake of the school shooting. That prompted a heated confrontation between New York Democratic Congressmember Jamal Bowman and Kentucky Republican Congressmember Thomas Massey just off the House floor, where Bowman accused Republicans of refusing to save children's lives. The cowards, a nine-year-old, three nine-year-olds, are they going to those funerals? No, they never go to the funerals. They never go to the scene of the mass shootings. And it's not just in schools. Kentucky Republican Thomas Massey responded to Bowman, quote, saying there's never been a school shooting in a school that allows teachers to carry, unquote. In 2021, Massey tweeted a photo of himself and six family members holding assault-style rifles with the caption, Merry Christmas, P.S. Santa, please bring ammo. In Los Angeles, seven California Highway Patrol officers and one nurse were charged Wednesday with involuntary manslaughter over the 2020 death of 38-year-old Edward Bronstein. Bronstein was detained during a traffic stop and violently pinned down at a highway patrol station in order to draw a blood sample, despite Bronstein saying multiple times he would give the sample voluntarily, screaming, I can't breathe, 12 times. The Texas Observer announced it has reverse plans to shut down and will continue publishing after a staff-led crowdfunding campaign raised over $300,000. The Texas Observer, once edited by the legendary muckraking journalist Molly Ivins, is a bastion of progressive reporting in Texas and beyond. And in Australia, lawmakers advanced a move to hold a historic referendum that would recognize indigenous people in the Australian Constitution and establish an indigenous voice to parliament committee. This is Thomas Mayo, Kaureg, Aboriginal and Kalkungal, Yoramalai Torres Strait Islander, a member of the referendum working group. It's not good enough that here in this country the life expectancy of indigenous peoples is almost 10 years less than other Australians. It's not good enough that proportionately we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. 
It's not good enough that our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. It's time for us to have a voice. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, Senator Bernie Sanders grills Starbucks longtime CEO Howard Schultz in a testy Senate hearing on the company's union busting. Stay with us. It's when you think how they want to think, speak how they want to speak, living in defeat when you don't want to question what they teach, as the truth with no proof, with the fear of burning in eternal heat, when you're programmed not to be your own man, but a sheep, being herded as they worded, so you're thinking ain't free, when you sleep in a deep sleep, standing on your feet, when you beat making ends meet, rather than they see, now you're labeled obsolete, working for elite deeds, in the heat on bare feet, smiling, showing off your teeth, good grief, it's a jerk how they work, and they jerk while they serve, us to by Black Alicious. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Oh, and Nermeen, a very happy birthday, belated Thank though it you. is. Thank you so much, Amy. Senator Bernie Sanders faced off with a longtime CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, Wednesday, at a Senate hearing focused on the company's union-busting record. Schultz, who's worth over $3 billion, stepped down as Starbucks CEO March 20th. His resignation came just weeks after a National Labor Relations Board judge ruled Starbucks had engaged in, quote, egregious and widespread misconduct— unquote, in its effort to prevent workers from unionizing. The judge also ordered Starbucks to reinstate illegally fired workers, reopen closed stores, and halt other union-busting tactics. Since 2021, nearly 300 Starbucks stores have voted to unionize. Later in the show, we'll be joined by a Starbucks worker who was fired after leading a unionization drive at a Starbucks store in Augusta, Georgia. But first, we turn to excerpts from Wednesday's hearing of the Senate HELP Committee. HELP stands for Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. Before questioning Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, Bernie Sanders opened the hearing by outlining Starbucks' labor record. Over the past 18 months, Starbucks has waged the most aggressive and illegal union-busting campaign in the modern history of our country. That union-busting campaign has been led by Howard Schultz, the multi-billionaire founder and director of Starbucks, who is with us this morning only under the threat of subpoena. Let us be clear about the nature of Starbucks' vicious anti-union efforts. The National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, 
has filed over 80 complaints against Starbucks for violating federal labor law. There have been over 500 unfair labor practice, practice charges lodged against the company, and judges have found that Starbucks broke the law 130 times across six states since workers began organizing in the fall of 2021. These violations include the illegal firing of more than a dozen Starbucks workers for the crime of exercising their right to form a union and to collectively bargain for better wages, benefits, and working conditions. Since the first Starbucks union was certified more than 450 days ago in Buffalo, workers at more than 360 stores across 40 states have held union elections. 83% of these elections have resulted in a union victory and today, nearly 300 Starbucks coffee shops employing more than 7,000 workers have a union, despite Starbucks' aggressive anti-union efforts. But with nearly 300 shops voting to form a union, Starbucks has refused to sign a single first contract with the union. Not a single one. Schultz, um, thank you very much. Uh, my time is limited as is the time of all of our members here. Uh, so I'm going to be asking you to respond to each question uh, as briefly as you can, hopefully with a yes or a no. Do you understand that in America, workers have a fundamental right to join a union and collectively bargain to improve wages, benefits, and working conditions. Do you understand that? I understand, and we respect the right of every partner who wears a green apron, whether they choose to join a union or not. Are you aware that NLRB judges have ruled that Starbucks violated federal labor law over 100 times during the past 18 months, far more than any other corporation in America? Sir, Starbucks Coffee Company unequivocally, and let me set the tone for this very early on, has not broken the law. Okay. Are you aware that on March 1st, 2023, an administrative law judge found Starbucks guilty of, quote, egregious and widespread misconduct, end quote, widespread coercive behavior? and showed, quote, a general disregard for the employees' fundamental rights, end quote, in a union organizing campaign that started in Buffalo, New York in 2021. Are you aware of that? I'm aware that those are allegations, and Congress has created a process that we are following, and we're confident that those allegations will be proven false. All right. Mr. Schultz, before answering the following questions, let me remind you that federal law at 18 U.S. Code Section 1001 prohibits knowingly and willfully making any fraudulent statement. I understand that. Were you ever informed of or involved in a decision to fire a worker who was part of a union organizing drive? I was not. Were you ever informed of or involved in a decision to discipline a worker in any way who was part of a union organizing drive? I was not. Have you ever threatened 
coerced or intimidated a worker for supporting a union. I've had conversations that could have been interpreted in a different way than I intended. That's up to the person who received the information that I spoke to him about. Were you informed of or involved in the decision to withhold benefits from Starbucks workers in unionized stores, including higher pay and faster sick time accrual? My understanding, when we created the benefits in May, one month after I returned as CEO, my understanding was under the law, we did not have the unilateral right to provide those benefits to employees who were interested in joining a union. Under your leadership, Starbucks has repeatedly refused to bargain with any of the 7,000 workers in nearly 300 stores where workers have voted to represent themselves through union. The first group of workers to win their election have been waiting more than 460 days to reach a first contract. Mr. Schultz, will you commit right now that within 14 days of this hearing, Starbucks will exchange proposals with the union, something it has refused to do for more than 450 days, so that meaningful progress can be made to bargain a first contract in good faith. Will you make that commitment? Because the arrangement that was made by the union and the NLRB in Buffalo to negotiate one single store at a time, we have met over 85 times for a single store. We've tried to arrange over 350 separate meetings. We've said publicly, and I say it here again, that we believe that face-to-face negotiations is the way to proceed. And the reason I want to make that point is that there have been safety issues in which Starbucks managers have been outed on social media. There are privacy issues. We don't want to do it on Zoom. We are prepared to meet face-to-face on a single-store issue. Will you make a promise to this committee that you will exchange proposals with the union so that we can begin to make meaningful progress. On a single store basis, we will continue to negotiate in good faith. That was former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz and Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders during a hearing Wednesday on the Senate Help Committee. Again, that HELP stands for Health, Education, Labor and Pensions. Former Starbucks worker Jason Saxton also testified at the hearing. Over the past 18 months, Starbucks has waged the most aggressive. In April, our store won our election by a landslide 26 to 5, despite all of the threats and intimidation. Starbucks retaliation and union busting ramped up even more after we won our election. We were constantly being watched and managers listened in on our conversations through our headsets. Store hours were constantly changing and hours kept getting cut. People were fired right on the shop floor. They fired seven of our union members, two of them were shift supervisors. Two partners requested medical and maternity leave, management refused to sign off on their leave, and they were terminated. Several people quit, including my wife. Some of us were told that we should look for another job. In July, I led a two-day unfair labor practice strike and delivered our demands. A month later, I was fired for supposedly being disruptive. 
That was former Starbucks worker Jason Saxton testifying Wednesday before the Senate. He joins us now from Augusta, Georgia. Jason, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you talk about the significance of this hearing and the grilling of the—well, usually everyone thinks of him as the Starbucks CEO, uh, Howard Schultz, uh, but, in fact, he just resigned. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, you know, yesterday's hearing was a very interesting few hours. Um, Howard Schultz, you know, does, did what he always does and, you know, misrepresented what was actually going on in stores. And maybe that's just because he doesn't know, um, even though he said he, he came back for operations and uh, for the customers, even though he constantly says he's there for the partners. Give us some background, your own story. What happened uh, in July? What led uh, to your being fired last July from the Augusta, Georgia Starbucks store where you were working? Yeah. So at my store, we decided that we were going to unionize because we were facing a lot of staffing issues. People's hours kept getting cut. Um, the training was insufficient. Uh, healthcare uh, coverage was too expensive, still is too expensive. And my, myself personally went on parental leave to have our, uh, so my wife and I could have our daughter and it was insufficient. It was just long enough for us to develop postpartum depression and then have to go right back to work. So we went forward with that and we kept dealing with those issues after our election. And that is also when they started firing a lot of us and they fired a shift supervisor. And so we decided to do a walkout, which led to a two day strike. And after that two-day strike, I went back to work. Everything was good. Went on vacation and came back, and I was fired. And they said that I was being disruptive. Now, again, on the day of the walkout, I wasn't being disruptive. And not only that, I wasn't a partner. I wasn't working at the time. I was off the clock. And, and what's your sense, Jason, from uh, the other employees at that store, but also at Starbucks stores elsewhere? Uh, if you said you mentioned some of them now, but what working conditions are like uh, for Starbucks employees? What precisely are the health benefits they get? You said it's very expensive, uh, time off, how many hours a week they work. If you could just say, um, you know, what are those conditions? I mean, the conditions are insane, right? So a, par a partner, which is what Starbucks calls their employees, can work one week 25 hours and the next week work five hours. So there's no stability in how much you're earning and how many hours you're getting. So you can't afford to pay your bills and you have to choose between gas and food. Um, the other working conditions like on the shop floor would be, you know, if you're down and warming, you know, you could burn yourself consistently. And that happens a lot with a lot of the products that go in the ovens, you know, we're constantly moving rapidly and constantly understaffed and having to meet the goals that Starbucks wants us to meet, which is 45 to 60 second out the window times, you know, for drive through. Let me ask you something, Jason. I think the number is something like 293 Starbucks stores have voted to organize of the 9,000 and seems to be going across the country. Um, Howard Schultz was grilled about the bargaining session, something like there have been 85. But in many of those cases, is it true the Starbucks officials work out, uh, walk out within 15 minutes? So 
I don't have any firsthand experience because Starbucks has refused to negotiate with my store. Um, but from what I have heard from other locations is that, yes, they it's been six minutes at one bargaining session. And it's simply because they don't like that there are people on Zoom, which I think it's funny. They, they Howard Schultz said during the hearing that they didn't want extra people to be in the background on the Zoom calls. But like you're constantly listening to us and surveilling us when we're working and then using that to terminate us and write us up. You know, and then also Starbucks policy allows customers to come in and record us all day long and we can't do anything about it. Finally, you testified before the Senate. But um, as we wrap up, your final comment, um, not only to Starbucks workers around the country, but for people to understand Starbucks is obviously a global corporation about what people should know about Starbucks. I think the biggest thing that people should know about Starbucks is that. While they tout themselves as a progressive company, while they tout that they're partner first, their actions, and even in Howard Schultz's words yesterday, don't show that they actually care to listen and understand that direct relationship that Howard Schultz says he wants is just so they can continue to dictate what they want to do and not actually give the partners a chance to say what's going on in their store and what they need to be whole. Well, Jason Saxton, I want to thank you for being with us. Former Starbucks shift manager terminated after leading the union drive at a Starbucks store in Augusta, Georgia. He testified on Wednesday before the Senate Help Committee, Health, Education, Labor and Pensions. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. When we come back, filmmaker Jennifer Fox joins us. Five years ago, she made a remarkable film about a coach that abused her as a child— now she's named him Ted Nash, the legendary Olympic rower and coach. She'll join us. Stay with us. Stories We Tell by Jose Gonzalez. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. In recent years, the Me Too movement has inspired women around the world to come forward with their stories of sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. In 2018, the filmmaker Jennifer Fox 
made a remarkable film titled The Tale, about her personal reckoning with experiencing childhood sexual abuse. The film was a narrative memoir based in part on Fox's own life experience about being abused by a coach as a 13-year-old. While the main character was named Jennifer Fox, the name of the abusive coach was fictionalized. Now, five years later, Jennifer Fox has revealed the man who abused her was Ted Nash, the legendary Olympic rower and rowing coach, who died at the age of 88 in 2021. Nash took part in 11 Olympic teams as a rower or coach. Fox said Nash began abusing her when she was 13 years old. Her recent revelation made the front page of The New York Times. The U.S. Rowing Federation has begun an investigation into Jennifer Fox's claims. In a minute, she'll join us in her first radio television interview since she made the disclosure to The Times. But first, let's turn to the trailer from the tale. The story you're about to see is true, as far as I know. When I was a child, I was obsessed with changing myself. Now I don't even remember who I used to be. Jennifer, sweetheart, I found a story that you wrote in the English class. Where'd you find it? What matters is what it says. I've met two very special people. Well, as an excellent coach. Jenny, do you trust me? Mrs. G was the most beautiful woman I had ever met. There are no bad horses, only bad riders. I need to talk about it with someone who was there. Hello, Mrs. G. Let's get you up in the saddle, see what you can do. I only remember them. Why can't I remember myself? You were an unusual child. Strong body, strong mind. Strong body, strong mind. I found some pictures from that summer. So special. You know, I have a lot of regrets. We talked about the relationship, but this is a grown man. This was important to me. Why are you so angry? Why are you not angry? You must push yourself beyond all boundaries. Don't tell anyone. It's all secret. I just need to know what happened. I'm trying to figure out why. You deceived yourself. That was the trailer for The Tale, starring Laura Dern and Common, a 2018 film by filmmaker Jennifer Fox, who's joining us now here in New York in her first TV radio interview since the New York Times expose on the front page. Uh, Jennifer is a writer and director who made the Emmy-nominated film The Tale, as well as others, a narrative memoir about her own reckoning with childhood sexual abuse. She has just revealed the identity of her abuser, Ted Nash, the two-time Olympic medalist and rowing nine-time Olympic coach. Jennifer, this is extremely brave of you. Um, Ted Nash is now dead. He died in 2021 at the age of 88. Can you take us on the journey from the 13-year-old to making this narrative film um, where you are the 
protagonists uh, in it. It's the person is named Jennifer Fox. But you didn't name him. And then your decision years after the film to identify your abusers. Yes, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you, Amy. Um, the truth is, if you know filmmaking, I knew that if I wanted to make a film about what happened to me, I could never name Ted Nash because he would immediately have put a lawsuit against me. So in order to protect the film and get the story out, which I thought was more important than naming him at the time, um, I decided to disclose, to not disclose who he was in the film. After I made the film, though, I then immediately started the process of trying to name him, and I went to many lawyers to see if we could prosecute him. The problem was is that Ted Nash, although he was very famous, wasn't worth any money, and so I couldn't get a lawyer to take the case against him because the way these lawyers make their living is by suing the institution that the coaches are part of um, in these sex abuse lawsuits. So I was discouraged from suing Ted after the tale and naming him. And the next idea was that maybe I would hire a private investigator to find out if there were other women. But the private investigators were so expensive and I wasn't able to afford them month to month. So at that point, I decided, okay, I made the film. The most important thing is out there, which is the nature of child sexual abuse and memory. Um, and I'm just going to have to go on and live my life. What happened, though, when he died, he was so feted all over America, and particularly in Philadelphia, around the University of Pennsylvania, where he was a coach. More things were named after him, more regattas. And I got furious. I didn't actually know what to do until a young woman who was with me in 1975, Pamela Burdett, um, she called me on the phone and said, Jennifer, I want to do something. I want to out him. Is it okay? And she, I said, yes. And she called the Safe Sport Organization or wrote them. She soon got a letter that said they couldn't touch it because he had died. And at that, that point, it was up to me to decide what to do. And um, I kind of took counsel with myself, because a part of me, truthfully, just wants to move on. But the child part of me, and this is really true, said to myself, you have to do something. I'm not going to rest until you do. And so I called Safe Sport. They put me, told me to call U.S. Rowing. U.S. Rowing asked me to write a letter. And immediately, a wonderful woman, the head of U.S. Rowing, Amanda Krauss, called me and, and asked me to tell her more. And uh, in that process, I decided to go to the New York Times to publicly out him. Amanda Krauss at U.S. Rowing went to her board, and they decided to launch an investigation, which is going on now. And that's how we got to today. Jennifer Fox, you mentioned— um the nature of child sexual uh, abuse, and that <clears throat> that's something that you wanted to talk about uh, in the film, and in fact you do in a magnificent way in the tale. You've drawn an analogy between the effects of child sexual abuse 
and that of being shot with a bullet that shatters inside you, saying it takes decades to pull out those little pieces. And that, to some extent, explains why people who are sexually abused as children are only able to even come to know, much less to articulate what happened to them, often decades later. If you could, if you could talk about that and how that sense is conveyed in your film, uh, The Tale. Yes, um, it's a great question because I think people out there who have not been abused don't understand why now. This year is 50 years since I was abused by Ted Nash. That's amazing even to myself. But in the film, what I talk about is the incredible power of the mind to protect the self against what happened to itself by changing the facts into something else. Um, And what I like to say, and I I don't want to compare these two because they're equally horrific, but there's a real difference between rape and sexual abuse, because rape is a clear violence that you see the attacker as someone bad. But sexual abuse is something insidious that an adult does to a child to slowly enter the child's world and make the child think that they are kind, loving, and have the child's best interest in mind. So that when the encroachment on the physical boundaries start happening, you there's a confusion set up. And that confusion remains in the cells and the DNA of us I hate to say victims of child sexual abuse. It's a very confusing act that takes decades to unpack in ourselves. And often the mind shuts down around it. I do give the analogy, it's like a bullet that explodes in you into a million pieces. And you can't really figure out all the pieces. Often it does take decades as it did with me. I mean, I only use the word abuse on myself and on what happened to me with Ted Nash in in my mid-40s making a film about women. And it came out to me, oh my God, I'm just like all those other women who had been abused. And then when I'd made the tale, it was really about the stories I had told myself to survive. I made myself a hero. I was the hero of my story. And even after making the tale, I think was the first time in my voice I felt, okay, I'm ready to name him, but I wasn't able to. And now in naming him 50 years later, I'm shocked that I have even any power because inside of me was this little girl who felt powerless against Ted Nash, who only now has been able to come out. One of the most uh, powerful uh, features of your film, the fact that both artistically, uh, formally, and in the uh, dialogue itself, there's so much that's conveyed about the impossibility of a child as she grows up to fully recognize uh, what's happened to her. the fact of traumatic experience, which induces exactly what you were saying, a splitting off, a silencing, or what they call dissociation. Now, what's amazing about the story that you've told is the role the making of the film itself played in bringing back to you uh, memories, say, one of those, some of those millions of pieces of the bullet 
that came together in the making of the film. So if you could talk about the relationship yes. between that, there's therapeutic practice that often helps uh, uh, survivors of, of sexual child sexual abuse, but then there's also the act of creation, of artistic creation, mm -hmm. and what that can enable. So if you could, if you talk, talk about your own experience sure. with that. Yes. I mean, I've always used filmmaking to make sense of the world, whether it's a personal story or an outer story. But the tale was my grappling with the fact that I had told myself basically a fantasy story that I was the hero of my abuse. After making the tale, little did I know that I was about to discover a whole nother story which was about the damage the abuse had done to me. And the tale doesn't really show that. The tale really ends with the character, Laura Dern, facing that she'd been abused. And in real life, after making the tale, it was a huge success, um, had a lot of impact, showed around the world, etc. Um, I was left with this other revelation that a part of me had been left behind at 13. And that part of me was the damaged part of me that I had never even seen or accepted. And suddenly, I had to reckon with this cutoff part. And that part was burnt and damaged in my own imagination. And many other things have come out in the last four years in my own mind. In fact, ironically, at some day I expect to make another work that is sort of a part two about this story. Um, but in doing that, I think also that part of me basically said, you have to do something. You have to stand up and name him. The reason is, you know, when Ted died, he was so feted and deified in the media. And I don't doubt that Ted did good in his sport. But the reality is this other story of the horror that he inflicted on me and possibly many, many others had never been told. And I think it's very important to bring this other story out to the world now and to show this other part of the man that people put on a pedestal and made into a god, it's a very important act to stand up to power in this way for me and for others. Jennifer, I want to go back to the tale, to your film, to play a clip. Um, for our audience, this is when Jennifer Fox, played by Laura Dern as an adult, has an argument with her supportive fiancé, who's played by Common. This was important to me, and I'm trying to figure out why, okay? These people were important to me. People? Who are these people? Like, I, I saw a letter from, from a woman. Who, who was that? That was my writing teacher. She introduced him to me, you know? And, and she was there that summer. That's why I went to see her. But I'm trying you, to figure it out. Why do you want to find them when you're the victim? I'm not saying that to... Okay. I am not a victim. I don't need you or anybody to call me a victim. Okay? Because you about my life. So we need to stop this now. Whew. That is a scene from the tale. 
Laura playing you, Laura Dern, saying, I am not a victim. And they are also mm-hmm. referring to another woman um, in this story, uh, in your life. Uh, you call her in the film Mrs. G. Uh, you've identified her as Susie Buchanan, who died 10 years ago. Uh, people didn't realize what this was about, because uh, you were involved with running with her. And if you can tell that story of how, at 13, you came to know her and how she facilitated the grooming by Ted, who, though was a rowing legend, was involved with this running team. Yes, um— uh, Mrs. Buchanan was my riding coach, very esteemed British riding coach in our community. And myself and two other young women and a young man um, were invited to spend the summer at her house and um, advance our equestrian. We had a wonderful summer. But the first morning, actually, we started, she introduced us to Ted Nash as her running coach. She was a very good runner as well. And every morning before riding, we would run with Ted, and he would pop by the farm because he lived across a field from her. He would pop by the farm daily to watch us ride. We'd go out to ice cream for ice cream at night, etc. Um, at the end of that summer, uh, my father, by accident, couldn't pick me up right away, and I stayed an extra night when the other kids left. And Susie invited me to go out to dinner with her and Ted at a local diner, and they told me that they were having an affair. They brought me into their world. Uh, Susie was married to a lovely veterinarian and had two kids. But they were having an affair, and they invited me to join their inner-city running team, the Padukis. Uh, in the fall, and I should bring my horse back in the fall to keep it at Susie's, and we would keep running and being together. I was very flattered. Uh, I adored these guys and looked up to them terribly. So in the fall, I brought my horse back, and I would come every weekend because it was quite far from my house, and I would stay at Susie's house. And we continued to run together, and then very quickly, one, one time, Susie was picking me up at my parents' house to bring me to her house. And she said, um, "Do you? would you want to stay at Ted's house on the weekends? He's jealous of our friendship. He wants to spend more time with you. And I, myself, was totally enamored with Susie Buchanan. I mean, she was our god. All of our students wanted to be just, although female students wanted to be just like her. And so in trying to please her, not thinking anything of it, I was like, okay. And so that evening after we rode at her house, she walked me across the field with my little suitcase to Ted Nash's house and said, "Um, now, you know, we can't tell your parents you're staying at Ted's house. And I was, you know, being a a very rebellious little kid at that time. It was the early 70s, and I was like, of course I can't tell my parents. They don't understand anything. And we won't tell Dr. Buchanan—that's her husband—that he won't understand. I was like, of course not. But I had no idea what I was walking into. And to my shock, she literally—Ted was there at the door. He was waiting for us, and she literally left me at the door, and there I was alone with Ted Nash, who I'd never been alone with once. 
and before, and I was like a nervous wreck, and he took me in his house and showed me where I was going to sleep, his children's room. He was divorced, and he had children that came on the weekends. They weren't there, and then showed me his Olympic medals. I had never been in his house, and then showed me a book of poetry we should read, and it progressed from there. So the the thing was, it's sort of classic. At every point was like, this is a man I trust. This is a God. This is my teacher. It had nothing to do with a love affair in any way, shape, or form. Um, it was so planned by him that he had hidden a condom, which I had never seen, under his pillow. Uh, the room, the living room was very cold. I was reading, and he said, oh, let's go in the bedroom to read. It's warmer in there. I forgot to make a fire. And I was like, okay, this is someone I trust. Now, remember, I was 13, but I looked like I was nine. I was completely undeveloped, hadn't had my period yet. Um, it was pretty horrific, quite frankly. And all the time as a child, you're, you're saying, but I trust him. He's a trusted adult. Mrs. Buchanan trusts him. And this is how sexual abuse happens. And in fact, uh, Jennifer, which you've also uh, pointed out in the past, uh, over which I don't think uh, um, most are aware of, that over 90 percent of cases of child sexual abuse, uh, the perpetrator is someone known to the child uh, and very often someone trusted by the child. And there's this other dynamic, which your film also uh, uh, demonstrates so well, which is also very common, namely that— the child has a feeling, uh, even in the midst of this relationship, uh, that the child is being selected, is, is somehow especially loved by this person whom mm. the child trusts. Mm. So could you talk a little bit, elaborate on the dynamics of that, which are extremely insidious and uh, mm. leave long-lasting effects, as your film shows? Mm. So important you pointed that out. I mean, here I was, kind of ugly, you know, like I said, girl who was 13 who looked like a nine-year-old boy with braces, by the way, terrible buck teeth. And here, like, this legend, Ted Nash, and this writing teacher who I absolutely adored. I mean, if anything, I was in love with Susie Buchanan as a little girl. She was a woman like I had never met. Anyway, um... The thing is, is that they singled me out. They made me feel special. I was invisible. I was invisible at home. I was part of a very large family, very chaotic, quiet. I was invisible at school. I wasn't particularly anything very smart, very—I obviously wasn't pretty. The boys certainly didn't notice me. I was shy. Here, these two incredible adults singled me out and said, you are special. I wrote poetry, and they used to have me read my poetry to them. And they were like, you're a good runner. You understand. They used to call me deep. You know, so all these things, and they were the first adults in my life. Remember, it was the 70s, but I w was living in a world where adults were from the 50s and treated you in a way that was very top-down, talking down to you. Here they talked to me like a person. I felt like, oh, my God, this is amazing. 
Jennifer, I want to go back to the tale. Um, and this is a scene between you, um, well, Laura Dern playing you, and your mother, played by Ellen Burstyn. Oh. Oh. Hey. Good morning. Thanks, Mom. Well, it's a good look for you. <laughs> Trashed. Oh, my God. I'm just locked in. I can't... I can't turn it off right now. Do you think Bill and Mrs. G paid extra attention to me because Dad was, like, a big developer back then? No. I didn't have anything to do with it. It was because you were... An unusual child. And you knew how to talk to adults. I was thinking about the first time that you met him. You know, when he came here to pick me up. Oh, I'll never forget that day. You kidding? All my antenna went off. That's Ellen Burstyn playing Jennifer Fox's mother. Um... Jennifer, in this last minute we have together, then we're going to do part two, and we'll post online at democracynow.org. If you can talk about your mom's response, you wrote an essay about this when you were 15, and your teacher corrected your grammar. Um, it's quite amazing, and says if this is true, but I assume it isn't. Uh, if you're hoping from this that other people come forward in the case of Ted Nash, and if names come down, for example, of the rowing wing of the University of Pennsylvania Athletic Center, name for Ted Nash. Oh, my God. What I'm hoping is that his name comes off everything. Um, it, it's disgusting that you have what is someone who has abused a child— with his name plastered over everything as a god. I hope the truth pushes the University of Pennsylvania and everywhere to take his name down. That is my goal here. And people—more people coming forward. You ended this, saying you wouldn't see them again when they wanted you to have a foursome. So that was another girl as well who was going to be involved, and they canceled yes. that because you said no as a child. Right. The plan was now when Ted was sleeping with me, of the right in our face, he was sleeping with Mrs. Buchanan. And this is really sad. They were also involving an 18 or 19 year old college student named Robin Stryker, who was quoted in the Times. And we just had 15 young seconds. Woman. Yes. So um, they were, we were having a threesome. They, were, they wanted to have a foursome, and I got sick and canceled it. My point is, is that Ted Nash most probably was sleeping with many other young women. I don't know if they were as old we, as me, but they're out there, and I hope they come forward. We have to, to leave name it there, but we're going to continue with part two. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Shea.